Well, if you want to turn with me in your Bibles, we're going to be returning to our, after a a little over a month, I think, of being out of the book of John, we're making our return to the Gospel of John in John chapter 12, beginning at verse 9. And just to put this in some perspective, John in his uh, Gospel narrative uh, is a little bit different from the other ones. About half of his entire Gospel is dedicated to the last and final week of Jesus' life, his earthly life. Uh, The rest of the chapters kind of move through without spending much time on the Christmas story or any of that. He just kind of moves along through the narrative, and then the last half is really dedicated to this week leading up to the crucifixion and also following the resurrection. He's going to talk about that also. And we're really entering into the beginning of that time. In chapter 12, Jesus is going to arrive in Jerusalem, and this is following what is arguably, at least in the minds of the people at the time, the greatest of all of his signs. Signs, of course, are these miraculous works that Jesus did that pointed people to significant truths about who he is and why he came. And right, and John links this very clearly, we're going to read it in just a minute, but before Jesus goes into Jerusalem on his way to the cross, the triumphal entry, that follows when he raised Lazarus from the dead. And this really captures the imagination of the public. Jesus um, would say, following that miraculous sign, I am the resurrection and the life. The resurrection of Lazarus is like a preview sample of the day when all graves will be robbed. And all of those followers of Jesus will be raised uh, into newness of life. This is just like a preview sample of that wonderful day that we all look forward to. But in in the minds of the people at the time, this is really just over the top amazing. It's a clear sign that he is of God and also that he's the Messiah. So we pick up things now. Jesus' star is at an all-time high in the minds of the people. And in John chapter 12, verse 9, we read this. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. 
Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, having just heard your word, I would just ask you now, Lord, by the Holy Spirit to guide us into it. I pray that nothing would go out from me as a teacher of these words that would be a distraction or that would not serve them well. Help me, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Like we have seen so often in our study through the Gospel of John, there is an awkward tension in these verses between what the people desire from Jesus on the one hand and what Jesus desires to give them on the other. What the people seem to want is a better lot in life. They want a kingdom and a king that represents their interests. They want deliverance and a deliverer. They want abundance and health and justice. But their fallen imagination seemingly can only conceive of these things materializing in a small, earthbound kind of way. They are seemingly blind to the enormous riches, power, and potentiality that Jesus represents. He wants to give the people these things, but in much greater measure than they can imagine. Uh, There's a story I heard about two brothers from Aristic County. Let's say they were from Aristic County. And they grew up in the county. They never set foot outside the county their entire lives. And they got older, and they decided they wanted to see the world. So they left home. They went down to the coast. They got a job working as sailors on an ocean liner. And one day when they were out in the middle of the North Atlantic looking around, one of the brothers, they're standing on the deck of the ship looking out over the vast expanse of the ocean. One of the brothers turns to the other and says, did you ever imagine that there was so much water in the whole world? And the other brother says, I know, and this is just the top of it. (laughs) It's a dumb joke. (laughs) But... This is why I'm a pastor, not a comedian. You see, this is, this is how this happened. That's the fork in the trail. Like, what am I going to be? No. But in that, isn't that crazy? That's, just, that's a really ridiculous way to think about it, right? They're standing on top of the vast depths of the ocean, but all they can see is the vast reaches of it. And they do, the, to, to some extent, the people that are welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem really do have a big, expansive, ambitious vision for what this guy can accomplish. I mean, as far as human beings, political movements, that kind of thing, what they're expecting out of Jesus is not small, is it? It's not like they're hoping he's going to open a new store in town. They're thinking he's going to overthrow the might of the Roman Empire and usher in a messianic kingdom where righteousness will dwell and all these promises are going to happen here. But still, even that, even though their vision is big and expansive and ambitious, it's like that one brother who says, and this is just the top of it. (laughs) 
not thinking about the depths, the, the absolute enormity of what Jesus represented was even bigger than that. The thing that Jesus wanted to give them was so much deeper and more vast than they could seemingly perceive, but still that's not quite right, is it? Is the problem just a a failure to imagine what was possible? Or a failure, in other words, I don't think that they just had a failure of imagination, an inability to perceive. I think it cuts closer to the truth that their problem was not rooted in a limited understanding of Jesus, but rather that their fallen affections and ambitions had come to rest on a hoped-for Jesus that in their minds was, was better than who Jesus was in reality. And I think that even when they perceived him correctly, they tended to become offended at him because he did not align with the hopes and dreams that they had attached to him. And this is a different and more insidious problem than just the problem of limited horizon of possibilities. Right? In other words, it's not like when Jesus cleared things up and says, no, that's not why I'm here, that's not what I want to give you, they didn't just go, oh, well, that's way better. Wow! They actually were offended. Throughout the Gospel of John, people are enthusiastic about Jesus when he does what they want him to do, and when he says the things they want him to say. But when he makes, the plain, makes plain the deeper significance of his actions and the deeper, more essential meaning of his words, they become offended by him. Their preference for the Jesus they imagined and hoped for, who was really just an invention of their fallen desires and ambitions, caused them to turn their nose up at the real Jesus when he would show up. Take this crowd of excited people welcoming him as the Messiah as he enters Jerusalem. Just a week later, the same crowd will be chanting, crucify him, and we want Barabbas. What happened? What happened to all their enthusiasm and excitement and praise and adoration? Well, I'll tell you what happened. The real Jesus showed up. And because they were blinded by a hoped-for Jesus, they saw no beauty or excellence in the real Jesus, and this led them to tragically walk away from what was infinitely valuable and precious in preference to an earthbound carnal dream of political change. This trading of the infinitely valuable for just a little bit more of this earth is always what comes from not seeing Jesus clearly. The thief on the cross is another really good example of this. When Jesus was crucified, he was crucified, the Bible tells us, between two thieves. And one of those thieves on the cross railed against Jesus. He saw a Jesus too. He believed that Jesus, he really did believe this, by the way, he looked at Jesus and he believed that he had power to deliver him from off the cross. But that was all he wanted from Jesus. His all-consuming desire for Jesus to grant him more days under the sun was like a man wanting to steal a few grubby pennies out of a solid gold bowl. He didn't want Jesus himself. He did not even want what Jesus undoubtedly desired to give him 
The thief's hopes were not trained on deliverance from the sin that had brought him to the cross, but merely from the consequences of those sins, from the cross itself. And his heart longed for more days on the earth, not an infinite number of days in paradise. His hope for Jesus was someone who would give him the equivalent of a few grubby pennies, a few more days under the sun, even if those days played out under the ominous curse of eventually coming to the day of his death again. And when Jesus would not do what he wanted, he cursed him, railed against him, and Jesus answered him not. Judas was the same. We're going to talk more about Judas in a couple of weeks, so I won't uh, blow the whole thing now, but I tend to think that Judas, out of all of the disciples understood best and most clearly what Jesus meant when he spoke about his plans to die on the cross. I I tend to think the other disciples believed or at least hoped that Jesus was speaking in a veiled way. And he didn't mean what he was saying literally, but maybe he's speaking in parables as he often does. Judas's problem was not that he misunderstood Jesus. Maybe he was the only one who understood him perfectly, but that he understood him all too clearly and was disappointed. There are many people who are motivated to follow Jesus because they perceive that there will be some this-worldly benefit in doing so. Their focus and concern is totally wrapped up in finding comfort and security in the here and now. This is what they're all about. And tragically, they are so blinded by their love of comfort in this world that when Jesus fails to produce a life of material abundance or continued health or security or freedom from hardship, they walk away from the bread of life which would have satisfied those longings perfectly and eternally. In Philippians 3.19, it says of such people, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. These people who welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem and then later cried crucified him are like so many Esau's trading their birthright for a bowl of stew. Our text for this morning begins by relating that after Jesus resurrected Lazarus from the grave, a couple of things happened. One, Public interest and excitement about Jesus, as well as speculation that he could be the long-awaited Messiah, grew to an all-time fever pitch. And this culminated in Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which John ties directly to the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. You remember, he says, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. Apparently, Lazarus is such an amazing, living, breathing, walking testament to the extraordinary powers of Jesus that the Pharisees, those perennial villains in the gospel accounts, are now scheming to kill him too which is a very ironic thing, right? He died, Jesus raised him from the dead, we'll just kill him again. (laughs) As if uh, Jesus won't just raise him from the dead again. 
Uh, Lazarus is invoked in verses 9 through 11 and again in verses 17 through 18. And after each time the mention of Lazarus is made, the Pharisees complain bitterly about the powerful effect that an alive and well Lazarus was having on the people. Verse 11 explains that they were plotting to kill Lazarus because, quote, it was on account of him many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And in response to seeing the crowds that came out to greet Jesus because they heard about Lazarus being raised from the dead, they said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So the Jews were going away from what? From who? And they said to each other, you are gaining nothing. What were they after? What did they hope to gain? Listen, I'm aware as I stand up here this morning that I am talking to a room full of people who want to be happy and who do not want to die. Isn't that true? You as human beings, you want to be happy and you don't want to die. Even if there was someone in our midst this morning, in the invisible world of their heart, they were suicidal. They, they still don't want to die. It's just that they dread life so much that that is, seems preferable, but it's not a good thing. It's just a big bowl of bitterness and wrong. Nobody wants that. And I'm talking to people this morning who are joy seekers and who do not want to die. And our text for this morning functions as a cautionary tale for anyone who would seek happiness or life in anything other than Jesus. We need to understand these verses in this way. You are joy seekers who do not want to lose your life. Sit up and pay attention. In Jeremiah 2, 12 through 13, we read this. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What are the two evils mentioned here? One is that they have forsaken God as the fount of living waters from which joy and life spring. The other is that they are trying to satisfy the God-given thirst of their hearts by pouring their efforts into the digging of a broken cistern. They're trying to essentially make themselves happy in things other than God. In his classic book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis delivers a profound insight into what the Bible describes in a beautiful, poetic sort of shorthand as these broken cisterns. Lewis says, All that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, all of this is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. Just look at the empty-handed desire of the Pharisees. You have to wonder, how do they look on the revivified frame of Lazarus and feel anything, anything but wonder, hope, and excitement? How is that possible? 
A man who was dead and gone in the grave so many days he had begun to stink. And Jesus at a word called him forth and he was returned whole and healthy to his family. And they are not able in their hearts to look on that sign with wonder, hope, and excitement. God says, be appalled, be shocked, be utterly desolate at this remarkable demonstration of evil that turns away from the fount of living waters and began scheming and designing this broken cistern of a plan to kill Lazarus and Jesus both. This twin turning away from God as one's treasure and turning towards something else in the hope that it will be better is the essence of evil. And we arrive at this def- definition of evil by reverse engineering repentance. Repentance is what? Repentance is a twin turning. Repentance is to turn away from evil and return to a full embrace of God and godliness. However, these Pharisees, when they are confronted with the undeniable proof of Jesus' power and goodness in the raising of Lazarus from the dead, they also commit a twin turning move towards evil. They deliberately turn away from the obvious evidence of God's activity and power and goodness. They turn away, they abandon the fount of living waters, and they start digging this evil cistern of a plan. It's a broken cistern that cannot hold, uh, it cannot hold joy and life. They continue on this disastrous joy-killing trajectory with their schemes, and they do this to exalt themselves. And this all reminds me of Romans 1, 22 through 23. It says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. This trade-off in which the glory of God is exchanged for the glory of man is at the root of every unhappiness, bitterness, strife, and envy. Every evil thing that is harbored and acted upon flows from this evil root. Now, before we close by taking communion together, I want us to see something else in these verses. Jesus says this in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. I just made the observation a moment ago that I'm speaking to a room of people who do not want to lose their lives and who want to be happy. And one of the best things I can tell you about our God is that he approves of that desire. He does. That is not a wicked thing that you want to be happy It is not a wicked thing that you want to be alive. (laughs) That's good. And in fact, God here is going to base his argument on that as a good thing. Uh, Very often, I think, in our fallen hearts, or maybe even the world, presents Christianity as a choice. It's a choice between obedience and happiness. In other words, there's a certain way we want to live, there's certain things we want to do, but we're afraid to do them for fear that God will disapprove and punish us, so we choose obedience over happiness. 
That's the way some people think about Christianity and the commands of God. But entertain with me the possibility that there's another more excellent way. That God wants more than anything for you to be happy. But that the great tragedy of human beings is that we're looking to be made happy in things other than God, which ultimately is a broken cistern. It doesn't work. And we're left with bitterness and aftermath and sadness and shame. It didn't happen. Maybe God is encouraging us through his commands to fight for joy. All of God's commands are for our joy. He is not a cosmic killjoy. This is a lie that, we are, that our, the enemy tells about our God and that sometimes in our heart of hearts we might believe. Jesus bases his argument in these verses by appealing really and truly to your rational self-interest. Rational self-interest is what causes you to meet your own needs, to care for yourself, to pursue happiness and to avoid pain. Rational self-interest is why you do not touch a hot piece of metal on the stove. That's rational self-interest. And that's not wrong or sinful. It's given to you by God. And ultimately, Jesus argues in a way that is predicated with, with, the, with the goodness of that very impulse that is in you. You want to keep your life, don't you, eternally? What if the only way, and I repeat, the only way to keep your life was to lay it down? As I, noted, as I already noted earlier, I'm speaking to people who want to keep their lives, so let's listen up. He's urging us to act in our own best interests. All, and he's saying here, I think, to all those people who marveled and celebrated the amazing sight of Lazarus raised from the dead, he's saying, listen up, all you who love life and fear death. This is the way. Whoever loves his life will lose it, loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, if you're in the habit of marking up your Bibles, I think of my book as like a tool, like a shovel or a hammer, and I just mark it up. If you're that kind of person, I encourage you to underline or highlight those words in this world. There in verse 25, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Again, I repeat, Jesus is for you. He is rooting for you to find life and happiness that will never fade, fail, or desert you. And here he is telling us how self-denial in this world will reap huge, worthwhile dividends in the next. Here's an example from the Bible of how this truth works in, Mo in, its, in Moses. In Hebrews 11, 25 through 26, we read this about Moses. He chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. In other words, Moses was not just somebody who said, for God's sake, I'm going to not pursue reward or happiness or joy. He is somebody who decided in perfectly rational, self-interested way, that there is a better and an abiding possession in God. 
And that if I say no to the rival suitor of this world, I will get all of that in eternity. Jesus himself modeled this for us. He was speaking of his own coming death on the cross when he said in Hebrews 12, truly, truly, oh, I'm sorry, and here in John um, 12, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And then in Hebrews 12, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy that was set before him, for the purpose of bearing much fruit. In other words, Jesus was motivated to go through the cross and the death for what was on the other side, the joy and the fruit, you, me, the church. It is the greatness of the future joy that gives us the capacity to deny ourselves lesser joys in this world. However, it is noteworthy and important that God ultimately is leading us by our desires. Again, he is not a cosmic sheriff killjoy. He's not a disapproving scold. He is the God of festival joy. And by calling us to deny ourselves the fleeting pleasures of sin, he is encouraging us to fight for a deeper pleasure that can only be found in him. And he never asks us to deny ourselves more of him. I think one of the greatest uh, revelations I ever had about God personally in my own walk with Christ was the understanding. One day I just awoke to this understanding, and you probably got there ages before I did. Sometimes I'm not the brightest guy. I'm, not, <laughs> I'm just not. But I woke up one day to the realization that all of God's commands are for my joy. Do you believe that? Uh, I, God's commands in the Bible were not given arbitrarily. It's not like he put a lot of stuff in a hat and he pulled it out and he said, okay, lying is bad. And telling the truth, well, that'll be good. It's not arbitrarily assigned. Everything that is right and good is so classified because it agrees with who God is in his character. And everything that is wrong and sinful is so classified because in some way it runs contrary to who God is in his character. Well, why is adultery wrong? Because God is a faithful, promise-keeping God. Why is lying wrong? Lying is wrong because God is truth. He only ever says the truth. And so we come here to God's commands, and something we need to see here is this, that our attitudes towards God's commands are absolutely 100% the same as your attitude towards God. God's commands are a perfect picture of who he is and his character. And if I look at God's commands and I think this is claustrophobic, this is in the way, this is keeping me from happiness, this is a fence that hems me in and keeps me from what I really want, That is the pure heart expression of my heart towards God in that moment. There is not a cat's whisker of difference between how I feel about God's commands 
and how I feel about God. And here's something, and this is the great thing about the conversation we're having this morning. God's commands are for your joy. The sad thing is that in my fallen heart, I sometimes have convinced myself that joy and happiness will be found in something other than God. And God in his word says, be appalled at that kind of reasoning. That is utterly desolate. That is horrific. That you would turn away from the fount of living waters, the fount of what would satisfy you and bring you joy and happiness in greater measure and forever and ever and always, and you would instead start scratching in the dirt, trying to dig out a little bit of happiness in this broken cistern of a plan, whatever it is. Whatever desires for this world or what it contains that has captured your imagination, that you lust after, that you scheme about, that your mind returns to over and over again in your thinking, Please know this is not the way to find happiness in life. It is a broken cistern. It is a scratching in the dirt. It is appalling that we would live our lives in a way that is fascinated and fixated on that rather than on the fount of living waters. Jesus says here that the way to find life is to lay it down. Whoever lives his life, loves his life, loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. One other uh, word here, we're going to take communion now. And as we do, how, how do we tie communion into what we're talking about <laughs> here this morning? What is communion? Well, communion is that moment that the Lord commands when we celebrate our being joined together with him. And when I look at Lazarus, we started by talking about Lazarus, and uh, it's this block of scripture that we studied this morning is uh, bookended between two things that happen. In verses 9 through 11, it talks about how Lazarus is so associated with Jesus that they not only want to kill Jesus, but Lazarus too. Lazarus is like a living reminder of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. And at the very end, Jesus says this, If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. And, and here we see a truth about being joined together with Jesus, of what that is to be a Christian. Lazarus is so associated with Jesus... And Jesus so associates with Lazarus that they are one person in the minds of the Pharisees, basically. Not exactly one one person, but they stand for the same thing. Lazarus is like a living, breathing, walking reminder of who Jesus is and what he's done. And Jesus is the resurrection and the life. There's really no shade of separation between God and his people, Jesus and his people. Jesus says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. And that's really what we're celebrating when we come to the communion table. Uh, The Lord's Supper is for um, those who have put their trust in Jesus for salvation. 
And maybe you're joining us here this morning and you have not yet made your decision about Jesus. And I would encourage you, if that's true, if you have not yet put your trust in Jesus for salvation, to, to not take part in communion. This is something for Christians to celebrate. And it's okay to just observe and think deeply about what Christians are proclaiming in this moment. Uh, here in the, Jesus talked about this. He said that uh, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And here we see the fruit of the grain that died for us. And the broken body represented by the bread and the spilled blood represented by the grape juice. We see the fruit that has blossomed in the lives of all of his believers and through which we are united to Christ. I think it's very uh, appropriate and even necessary before we do partake in the, uh, the bread and the cup to draw before the Lord and to uh, talk to him about any areas in our lives that we need to confess. In, he, in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, where we find instructions for taking communion it says whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the lord let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died this is a natural time uh, for Christians before we take communion together to just draw before the Lord in prayerful reflection. Is there any area in your life where you are continuing in patterns of disobedience? Are there relationships that are out of bounds? Is there anyone who you have injured and you have not gone to to make it right? Let's draw before the Lord and just spend a couple moments in pri pri private prayer before we take the bread and the cup together. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this reminder from your word this morning. And God, certainly, I, I just take a lot of comfort in the knowledge, Lord, that you are for us and that you are not in the way of our joy or the pursuit of happiness. We don't have to choose between being happy and being with you. But that true, the true happiness, the greater depth of happiness, the longest lasting, better happiness is found in obedience. God, help us to see that. God, maybe some are struggling to believe that today. Father, I pray that you would, by the Holy Spirit, give the capacity for greater obedience. Give us the capacity to see and perceive you for who you really are, and more than just understanding who you are, that we would love the truth of it. 
Father, obedience to your commands is one of the greatest ways we have of saying that we love who you are. And we believe in your promises. We believe you when you say that this is what will bring joy. But maybe we haven't tested the theory yet nearly as much as we should have. God, as we say no to those things that are opposed to you, and as we say yes to you, as we give you all that you want to take and take from you all that you want to give, I pray, Lord, that you would surprise us this week with joy, a deep, rich, abiding joy, the kind of joy we won't be ashamed of in 10,000 years. God, as we meet you in your word and as we seek to live what we see in your word, God, I pray, Lord, that you would fill us with a wondrous satisfaction, that we would enjoy you. God, I pray that you'd give that to us as a gift this week. Thank you, Lord, for the table and all it represents, that in all of our wanderings and sin, God, all that has been paid for. And now, Lord, we are free just to come to you as children, not with fear of punishment, but with a certainty that, we, that you are for us. We thank you for these wonderful things. In Jesus' name, amen.